Amen. We are picking up in our sermon series where we left off two Lord's Days ago, and we are back in the Gospel of John. If you have a copy of Scripture, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 2. You also find that printed in your bulletin. I know that you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me this morning as we look at John chapter 2 together. We're looking at verses 1 through 12. As we are moving out of the prologue of the fourth gospel and we are moving into a more focused uh, account of the Lord Jesus and his glory in, in Galilee. This, this is one of the differences between John's gospel and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is focused on a particular season in the ministry of the Lord Jesus in a particular geographical location. And so John is going to give us lots of things that we don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's going to give us miracles that we don't find. He's going to give us teachings that we don't find. And, and all of them harmonize. And yet God the Holy Spirit has been kind enough to give us a diversity so that we see more of the Lord Jesus and we understand more of his heart and we are drawn to him more. And so we're looking this morning at this first of the miracle signs of the Lord Jesus at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And now... John writes this, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. By the way, just in passing, my best friend likes to say, if they had filled them halfway, we would have only gotten half the wine. If they had not filled them at all, there would have been no wine. They do what Jesus says. They fill them to the brim. And notice... They filled them to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things that you probably almost certainly don't know about me is that I do not enjoy officiating weddings. You're like, what? Who doesn't like a wedding? I don't like officiating weddings because I don't want to mess up some young woman's very special day. And I have a propensity to mess things up, and you got to be gracious with me if I do mess things up. I don't want to mess her day up. This is her day. <laughs> this is his day. This, this is where all the eyes are on the bride and the groom. This is when all the attention is focused on them and that special moment. 
And as much as we love weddings, and I do not enjoy officiating them, um, the Lord Jesus went to weddings. And it wasn't just to put his blessing on it. Sometimes this passage is uh, just reduced down to Jesus blesses Christian marriage, and so do we. That's not why uh, Jesus was there. That's true. Um, and in fact, it's very interesting this is the only wedding I know of where all eyes are not on the bride and the groom, but they're on Jesus. We don't even know whose wedding it was. Jesus and his mother and his disciples were invited. No doubt it was a relative. No doubt it was someone that they knew quite well. And, and they all went to this massive feast and, and, and things go horribly wrong. The minister doesn't mess up the wedding. The bridegroom messes up the wedding. He has not planned to have enough wine at the wedding. Now, legions of books have been written on this passage, many of which miss the point entirely, and, and many who get down into the minutia of arguing about what, what, how much alcohol was in this wine. That is not the point. And, and I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you there was plenty of alcohol in this wine. The passage says they had drunk too much, and Jesus gives them more. And, and no Jesus gets us out of that. He makes 160 to 180 gallons of the best wine. This is not Welch's grape juice. The best wine. And books have been written. And one of the difficult things about this passage, and one of the reasons why there's so much misunderstanding, is it only comes here in John chapter 2, and it's never explained isn't that interesting? All the other miracles have an explanation. Jesus follows them up and he explains why he raised Lazarus. He explains why he does what he does. And this one, we're just left out there sort of wondering, why is it here? And, and why is this the first miracle? Why isn't Jesus' first miraculous sign a miracle of healing? Wouldn't it make sense that if he's the savior of soul and body, his first miracle would be a miracle of healing? Almost all the other miracles in this gospel are miracles of healing, but this sign is not. Um, I want us to consider this morning as we look at this together three things. First, I want us to consider the, the nature of this first miraculous sign of Jesus, the nature, and then I want us to consider the meaning of this first sign of Jesus, and then I want us to consider the goal, the nature, the meaning, and the goal. Well, uh, you've heard me say already that this is a sign. This is not just a miracle. You know, if there is anything that Christians lack uh, developed understanding of its miracles. Um, there are many who think miracles happen all the time, that they're commonplace and they're praying for them and they're looking for them and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, in scripture, most of the miracles come in clusters and most of them come at very special times in redemptive history. You have miracles in the days of Moses, you have miracles in the days of Elijah and Elisha, and then you have miracles in the days of Jesus and the apostles. Um, King David never wrought any miraculous sign. Um, most of the saints in the Bible didn't live at periods when there was any miraculous working of God. And, and the point is clear. It's not about the miracle per se. It's about what the miraculous thing God is doing is pointing to. It, it, these are signs. So they are signifying something. They are pointing away from themselves. You know, a couple weeks we were downtown and some friends who had been visiting here for my installation, we were 
witnessing to a young man downtown, and, and he said, you know, I like the Bible except for all that magic stuff. And we were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, clearly you've never read the Bible. This is not magic. <laughs> this is a divine inbreaking into time and space where God is taking something in the natural world and he is fixing it. He is doing something with it. And he's doing that to indicate who he is and what he is doing. And all of these, every miracle in the Bible points us to Jesus Christ. Every miracle that Moses did, every miracle that Elijah and Elisha did. I, I heard a minister, a revered minister in the PCA, say at a conference I was at, and I could not believe I heard this, that the point of Elijah raising the widow of Zarephath's son was not to point to Jesus and the resurrection. I thought that's the only reason we have a resurrection. If that's not the point, he said, he said the point is God does great things. Yeah, yeah. That's the subservient point. All of it is pointing to what God is doing in the Lord Jesus. These are signs. And they're meant to be viewed and understood in that way. When we consider these miracles, we're meant to say, what am I being pointed to? Who am I being pointed to? What ought my response be to this? And, and Jesus does this first sign. Now, I mentioned early on that um, Jesus' first miracle wasn't a miracle of heal healing. And, and I'll tell you why I think that's the case. Jesus didn't come to be some sort of uh, astonishing miracle worker. Jesus didn't come to heal everybody. Jesus' healings are very selective in nature. Now, they point to the fact that he will heal all of his people in the resurrection on the last day. They do point to the bodily healing. If you ask me, does Jesus heal all of his people of all of their physical infirmities? I tell you emphatically, yes. In the resurrection on the last day. He came to be the savior of body and soul, but he did not come in his first coming to heal everyone of all the miseries of this life. And 100% of the people Jesus healed got sick and died again. And so it's very important that the first miracle that Jesus does, the first miraculous sign, is him turning water into wine, something that seems so unspectacular. That really does seem unspectacular of all the things Jesus does. There are, by the way, seven of these signs in John's gospel. This is the first of seven. The first half of the fourth gospel is often called the book of signs. And the second half is often called the book of glory. You have, you have in this gospel the turning of water into wine, the healing of two sick in two different regions, the multiplying of the loaves, Jesus walking on water, the healing of the blind man, and the raising of Lazarus. Those are the seven signs that Jesus does in this gospel, and all of them are pointing to him and showing us this is God manifest in the flesh. Um, he does those signs from within himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, I want us to secondly and most significantly perhaps consider the meaning of this sign. Why did Jesus turn water into wine? Well, it's not because he's the life of the party. Um, sometimes hipster pastors like to tell you that, and it sounds great. Jesus was the life of the party, and all the drinks are on him. 
That's not why Jesus turned water to wine. Jesus has a very specific theological reason why he was doing what he was doing. Now, he was taking away the shame that the bridegroom would have had at this wedding. He, he, was, he, was, he, was, he was restoring what was failing, and he was doing so against a very large Old Testament background that gave meaning to what he was doing. Now, um, the first of those Old Testament backgrounds was Moses turning water into blood. You remember the first of the plagues, the third of Moses' miraculous signs, the first plague was water to blood. And oftentimes in scripture, you'll know this, God, when he does something great, when he's doing something redemptive, when he's bringing an act of judgment and salvation, he does so through the means of water. Now, why? Well, because he created this globe, this planet, out of the waters. The water's covered, he brought blessing when he separated them. And then remember, when, when not long after men had showed just how depraved they could be, he covered the world again with those waters out of which he had brought blessing, and he brought judgment, and he eradicated the wicked world, and he saved Noah and those with him in the ark, and it was a principle of judgment through salvation. And then when Israel was oppressed and God had sent that final plague and the death of the firstborn and, and delivered his people with a strong arm and an outstretched hand, he brought them through the waters. Remember, just like creation, he divided the waters. And dry land appeared and they walked through. They were a new creation typically. And then he destroyed the wicked in those waters, just like at the flood. Every time God was doing some major work of judgment and salvation, he did so by means of water. He reached in and used it. And here, at the fullness of time, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in the very first miracle that he does, the Lord Jesus essentially is saying, the time has come, all things are being fulfilled, and he is saying, I came to again bring blessing where there was no blessing. I came to bring joy where there was no joy. Um, the water pots, John tells us, were for the Jewish rites of purification, and, and we know that didn't do anything to the heart. Water can never change your heart. That's why we don't believe baptism regenerates you. Water can't change your filthy heart and mine. Um, and in, in, in the Old Testament, the, the Judaic rituals that they added to the scriptures did nothing. The washing of hands, the washing of dishes, it did nothing. And, and there was an emptiness, wasn't there? Israel was just a shell of what it was supposed to be. There was no spiritual joy. There was bondage. The religious leaders were telling you, you're not doing enough. You're not working hard enough. You're not keeping our laws. You're not trying hard enough. There was no joy. There was a bondage. There was a yoke that was placed on the backs of the people of God. So much so that when Simon Peter preaches the gospel in the book of Acts, he says, it was a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers could bear. It was burden. And Jesus comes and he said, I've come with blessing and joy. Uh, in the Old Testament, wine everywhere represents the spiritual blessings of the spiritual joy that God was going to bring Amos speaks of in the New Testament under the figure of wine flowing down the mountains. Isn't that awesome? What's going to happen when the Messiah comes? 
There's going to be wine. I want to find that mountain. Wine flowing down. That's what it says. It's not a literal mountain. This is symbolism. It's the meaning. He's come for blessing. He's not turning water into blood. By the way, when Moses turned the water into blood, that was an indication of what God was going to do in shedding the blood of the Egyptians in the water of the Red Sea, ultimately. He doesn't come with judgment in his first coming. He comes with blessing. Isn't that awesome? That's what the sign's pointing to. This one has come to bless us. This one wants you to have joy. Isn't that awesome? Now, it's not just that Old Testament background of the water judgments. There is also the principle of new creation. And this is the first of John's series of new things. Jesus gives new wine. In the same chapter, he'll say he came to bring a new temple. And then in the next chapter, he'll talk about the new birth. And then in chapter 4, he'll tell the woman at the well that 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 water will never satisfy her. She needs new water. She needs living water. There is that principle of newness and new creation. By the way, John's gospel, John never talks about days, weeks, or months, except in these first two chapters. And if you follow the progression, remember the next day, the next day, the day after that, John the Baptist, remember that. Now three days later, now we've got six days, and then you throw day one in the beginning, was the word. You have, a, you have the first week, and that's indicating that God is doing a new creation through the eternal Son. Isn't that awesome? Never anywhere else does John talk about days or times. This is the recreator. He came to make all things new. He gives them the new wine. Now, there's also those details, those pesky details. And, and, and I remember witnessing to a girl 20 years ago in Greenville, South Carolina, and she said, I said, Jesus never sinned. She said, he dishonored his mother. I said, when? I said, when he was in the temple. I said, no, he's honoring his father. I said, give me another example. He said, well, he demeaningly called her woman. That was demeaning. I said, no, it wasn't. Now, why does Jesus, I mean, we're not going around saying, hey, woman, to our mom. Uh, Hey, woman, leave me alone. That would be disrespectful. Why does Jesus address his mother this way here and on the cross when he hands her off to John? Well, there have been many attempts to explain this. One of those attempts is... Uh, that people say he just wants her to see that his relationship to her is such that he's the Savior and she needs a Savior. And that is true. That is very true. He, he wants her to see herself as in need of him the w- same way he wants us to see our need for him. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think Jesus is reflecting on that first great promise in Genesis 3.15 that God would send a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And here's how I want us to get there this morning. Mary comes to Jesus and and, and she tells the servants that, you know, do whatever he says. She she wants him to show off a little bit. Mary Mary wants Jesus, this is his moment, this is my boy. And and he's got a lot of power and he's got a lot of glory. Remember John said, 
we, we beheld his glory. And, and she, is, she is essentially saying, okay, show him. <laughs> she, she wants to let him loose. And, and it's not time, is it? And she doesn't know what she's saying. And so Jesus is correcting her misunderstanding. He's saying, what of you and me? This, this is not what I came for. I didn't come just to give blessings. I didn't come just to give temporal blessings. I didn't come just to fix a wedding that would have been ruined in, in, in ill rapport. I didn't come to do that. I came, I came to suffer. Where does Jesus say that in this passage? He says, my hour has not yet come. Whenever Jesus speaks of his hour, he's speaking of the cross. You see what he does? He connects the wedding feast. He connects the need that they perceive there with the real need and what he came to do. And so he's essentially saying to Mary, I didn't come for this. You are the woman from whom I came. I am the long-awaited Messiah, and I came to suffer. And I came to give the real joy and the real satisfaction by my suffering on the cross for your sins. Isn't that awesome? Jesus never misses an opportunity to take us to the cross and to say, this is why I came. This is where the real wine's going to be made. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us, right, that when Jesus institutes the supper, he institutes the cup with wine. And, and he's going to take the judgment to give that blessing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but on the night when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, uh, he was in the garden, and before, before he goes to the cross, he goes into the garden, and there's a cup put in front of him. And, and it's a cup of wrath. And, and it causes the Savior to recoil in horror over what he was going to have to endure on the cross. And, and we know about that cup because in the Old Testament, the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, speak about God's wrath under the figure of a cup full of his wine mixed and him going to make his people drink it to the dregs because of their wickedness. And, and we deserve to drink that cup. I deserve to drink that cup. And he takes that cup to his lips on the cross so that he can hand us the cup of blessing and say, this is what you get. This is the cup you get. This is the blessing I give you by my suffering. Um, it's all tied together. From the first miracle to the last miracle in his resurrection. Now, there is also, in this passage, the meaning of this miracle is related to the theme of the bridegroom. Here is the heavenly bridegroom. Here is the one who came to be the bridegroom of our souls. I wonder if you think about Jesus like that enough. Jesus, lover of my souls, to your bosom I fly. Do you think about the Savior? You think about the Savior as the bridegroom. John the Baptist will get this in the next chapter. John will give his last speech, and he, he will push away from himself to Jesus, and he will say, he will say, I'm merely the friend of the bridegroom. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, the one who stands here, rejoices 
in the bridegroom. Here's a wedding. We don't know who's getting married. It's ruined, and all eyes are on Jesus. He is the bridegroom. By the way, Jonathan Edwards. And I think he is right. Said God created the world that he might get a bride for his son. Why did God create the world? One answer is that he might get a bride for his son. If you're a believer, you will be part of that bride wed to the lamb forever. When human marriages pass away, and they will all pass away, everything is going to be focused on the bridegroom. You know, I often, at weddings, I often say, so-and-so and so-and-so, if I can remember their names and not ruin their wedding, so-and-so and so-and-so are, are thrilled to have you here, um, and, and they are rejoicing that you're here rejoicing with them, but I know because I only do Christian weddings, I know that they would be more rejoicing if they knew you were going to the heavenly bridegroom and trusting in him. And I ask you this morning, have you trusted in him? Are you trusting in him? Have you ever seen your need for the bridegroom? That's what he is doing at this wedding. He's standing there saying, I am the lover of the souls of my people. I have come to redeem a bride for myself. I will shed my blood for her. I will give her out of my fullness that she will forever be with me. The Bible opens with a wedding. The Bible closes with a wedding, the wedding of the Lamb. And right in the middle, Jesus at the wedding of Cana doing his first miracle. How awesome is that? Now, we've seen briefly the nature and the meaning of this first miraculous sign of the Savior, and I want us to consider finally and briefly uh, the goal. What is the goal? Well, notice there, notice there in verse 11, John tells us explicitly, he says, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Um, it's very interesting the only people that know what happened in this account, notice what John says, um, the servants take it, they go to the master of the feast, notice that he tells us parenthetically, the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast didn't even know where this wine came from, the guests don't know where the wine came from, the bride and the groom may not even know where the wine came from, the disciples know where it came from, and the servants know Jesus, in a sense, kept it concealed from those except those he wanted to know, and you have the privilege of hearing about it today, which is absolutely amazing. When they didn't even get it there in the flesh, and the goal was that he manifested his glory and that his disciples believed in him. You know, John tells us in chapter 1, verse 14, we beheld his glory. He's reflecting on the transfiguration when the divine nature bursts through the humanity for a moment, and we see who Jesus really is, that he is the God-man, that he is the eternal God, emanating glory, not like Moses' face, reflected glory, but coming from in himself. He's God, and John can't get over that scene. He's an old man here, and he says, we beheld his glory. Now, the first miracle, seemingly unspectacular, was a manifestation of that glory. And the goal 
was that his disciples would see it and would believe in him. And that's the goal this morning. The goal in me preaching this passage and you hearing this passage in us collectively listening to this is that we would see the glory of Jesus and that we would believe in him. And that's not a one-time thing. You know, John will tell us in 1 John, I write these things so that you continue believing. You never stop believing. I know that's a cheesy song, but you ne- we never stop believing. We're, we're always believing in the Lord Jesus. We're always going back to him. We're always needing to see more of that glory. Um, I want to encourage you this week ahead as you reflect back on this passage that you would ask the Lord, and I asked him this week for this, that you would ask him to give you a newfound sense of astonishment at what you're actually seeing if you are seeing this with the eyes of faith. Um, By the way, there is an incremental increase in the miracles in John's gospel. Water to wine, raising of Lazarus. There's an increase, almost an increase of the power and the glory, a heightening, a crescendo But this first one is meant to do that in your soul. Um, Have you ever prayed what Moses prayed? Lord, show me your glory. And when he answers that prayer, he shows you this Savior doing this miracle, pointing to himself and showing you what he came to do for you when his hour finally came. Um... I hope that as you consider these things that you will meditate on your need to respond to this the way the disciples did and that you would keep believing, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10,000th time, that you will go back and say, Lord, show me your glory, increase my faith. And you know what? He loves to answer that prayer. He did this for the disciples, and he did it for you if you belong to him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning, what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are so weak, our minds are so dull, our hearts and our affections are often misplaced. We have seen uh, so little of the glory that is in the Lord Jesus, and we desire to see more. Lord Jesus, would you please show us your glory? We pray that you would make us to be a people who see with the eyes of faith, 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 the, the glory of God shining in your face. We pray that you would take this word that we have heard and that you would astonish us. We pray that you would make us to know that you are the seed of the woman, that you are the bridegroom of the souls of your people. We pray that you would make us to see our need for your blood and for the spiritual blessing and joy that you give us. Through the shedding of that blood, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do that in us, and we pray that you would give us that resultant joy from giving it to us. We do pray these things in your name. Amen.